From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz Group headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, Berkeley, California strives for resilience, big companies step up to support the clean power plan, and is sustainability reporting worth the effort? We're reporting on reporting this week on 350. It's April 8th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here with Green Biz senior editor and slightly ailing <laughs> Lauren Hepler. How are you feeling today, Lauren? Good, good. Hanging in there. The Oakland is keeping it interesting with the jackhammers going that listeners may be treated to. <laughs> yeah, if you hear some uh, some interesting noises in the background, that is the sound of progress. Yeah, if you're going to write about urbanization, you have to deal with jackhammers. You have to deal with Oakland. I mean, Oakland is on the rebound and, and has been for a while, but it's a, it's a happening place. And right outside, we're smack dab in the middle of it, just a couple hundred yards from Oakland City Hall. And, and uh, we've got uh, progress going on outside, uh, building renovations, street rehabilitations, and who knows what else. But we will soldier on and we will drill down ourselves into the world of green business. So uh, let's talk about the Week in Review. I'm no court reporter, but I do know that it was a busy week for the Clean Power Plan, which is obviously under review by the Supreme Court. Uh, senior writer Barbara Grady was covering both the businesses and the municipalities weighing in on the issue. So Barbara is here with us right now. Um, what's going on? Let's start first with sort of the business perspective. I understand there was an amicus brief filed with the court. Four big tech companies, Apple, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft, filed um, an MET brief with the U.S. District Court to support the Clean Power Plan. And then on the same day, so did four really big global brand companies, IKEA, um, Adobe, Mars, and Blue Cross Blue Shield. And they all were arguing how important the Clean Power Plan is, both for economic reasons and for transitioning the country and themselves to 100% renewable energy, which all eight of them have as goals. But what was so interesting in their brief was that they described the need for this national policy as kind of economic and beneficial to their business. And so the other part of this, as we alluded to, I remember you saying earlier in the week, hey, there's actually another thread here that's interesting, which is that there are actually cities in the... Uh, mostly red states that have come out as opposed to the clean power plan, like Miami within the conservative or at least purple state of Florida um, coming out and saying, hey, we've got rising sea levels. And so was that also an economic yes. argument? Yeah. So the other big brief filed was from cities, including uh, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, the National League of Cities, and 54 local governments saying... This is really important to us, and the reasons, again, were mostly economic. What was really interesting to me is seven cities in Florida were on this list, and they described their huge expenses to protect against sea level rise and, and storm surges and how much they've had to pay out so, and that um, 
you know, the costs are expected to grow like sevenfold or so in the near future. And yet Florida is one of the states that are opposing the clean power plant. So the case at the center of all this is West Virginia et al. versus the Environmental Protection Agency, and 27 states have piled on and said, we don't want this plan, it's an overreach of federal authority, and it will hurt jobs, and it will hurt our economies. But then all these cities are saying, man, um, you know, climate change is really hurting our economies. So did you get any sort of reactions or outside groups weighing in, or is it clear sort of what happens next? The court will just take this into consideration as they deliberate? The court proceedings begin June 2nd, so I think that's why everybody filed on that day, which was apparently the last day for any kind of briefs to be filed. Mm-hmm. Edward Cameron, the managing director of BSR, noted not only how important this is to U.S., but that the Clean Power Plan is the centerpiece of the Obama administration's commitment in the Paris Accord. And if it falls apart, then the whole international agreement could start unraveling. I remember the sort of the U.S. role in the international climate talks was a huge deal in Paris, so definitely something we'll continue to watch. While Barbara was tracking down the business response to the clean power plan, our senior writer Heather Clancy was focused on a little bit different business pursuit in the realm of sustainability. Specifically, she was looking at the way companies like Disney, Microsoft, and PepsiCo are getting into the field of biogas. So that's, of course, converting um, animal waste, in most cases, to energy. Um, And so Heather said this is sort of something that's a bit nascent, but we are starting to hear more about. Well, it's nascent, but we've been uh, talking about this technology for a long time. Biogas is is any gas that's uh, created from the breakdown of organic matter. I mean, you know, your household waste... uh, sewage, trash of any kind, food waste, uh, plant waste, um, municipal waste, and manure. And uh, they, they do this in, a, in a, what's called an anaerobic digester, which is putting organisms inside of a closed system without oxygen. And, and, and pretty soon you have what they refer to in the trade as pipeline quality methane, the same kind of thing that you would get uh, from a well and you can put into the system to generate electricity or to run our stoves or or whatever. Mm -hmm. So you'll see in some cases uh, the largest U.S. electric holding company, Duke Energy, is getting involved in this because of sort of state renewable energy requirements. And there's some debate about sort of how green some of these approaches are. But on the other end of the spectrum, Heather covered um, an interesting pilot that Microsoft was doing. It was an 18-month look at if a fuel cell can be run directly on waste gas. And the ultimate hope there is that they would be able to have another source of power for their data centers. Yeah, well, there's, you know, nothing, we talk about renewable energy, there's nothing more renewable than trash, right? We're generating it all the time, and particularly animal waste. And and it's not just that it's waste, it's a huge environmental problem. I'm sure most people know about what's happening in the Southeast with the huge poultry farms and pig farms and and cattle ranches and, and, and all over, not just in the Southeast, but all over the world. And the, 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 the manure that goes ends up in the waterways, which ends up in, you know, the, the water systems. And so, you know, dealing with, and of course there's air emissions and, and lots of other things, methane, 
uh, that, that emits from, from uh, this waste as it breaks down is a potent greenhouse gas. So we're solving a number of problems here as well as finding a, a, even, even though small, a relatively small portion of a renewable energy relative to wind and solar or even geothermal will come from this. It's, it's actually a, a really terrific technology. And it's been, as I said, in the works for a long time, but we're just now getting to commercial viability. So waste is one big nagging challenge that confronts companies in all industries, uh, but another is employee engagement. Yeah, that's a perennial, and as we talk about at our Green Business Executive Network meetings and as we look at surveys, or even if we look at stories we publish in terms of how many, uh, how often they're read or what are the most read stories on Green Biz, inevitably employee engagement comes comes up. And, and this week we ran a, a piece that's an excerpt from our State of Green Business Report 2016 report, which is always available 24-7 as a free download from greenbiz.com, uh, about sustainability as an employee perk. In other words, how employers are offering uh, some kind of, of, of benefit with an environmental uh, benefit uh, to encourage and engage employees. Yeah, and that really is a pretty broad category. That could be everything I know with the Silicon Valley companies out where we are. There's a lot of issues with traffic and just logistically getting people to and from these suburban campuses. So they'll offer incentives for living closer to work, which then obviously does have an environmental benefit if they're not driving solo trips all the way from San Francisco or whatever. Um, There are other uh, companies, I think Bank of America is one of them, that's been pretty big on offering financial incentives for companies to buy electric vehicles. For employees to buy electric vehicles. Yeah, yeah. So an even more explicit environmental connection there. Yeah. And Adobe is one of several companies that that do does group purchasing of solar for their employees. So employees can buy in for solar panels for their roof and get some kind of group discount through uh, Solar City or SunPower, one of their the, the preferred vendors. Um, and again, what's going on here is not just um, uh, helping out employees, but it's getting them thinking about environmental uh, stuff at home, which it, uh, the hope is that they'll bring that that mindset to work. And it's improving their lives. It's, you know, uh, making their commute shorter, making their gasoline costs uh, less if they, or their fuel costs less if they're uh, getting electric car at a subsidized rate or, or, or again, with solar. Um, and this helps address this perennial issue of how do we engage employees Every day, not just the third week in April, but how do we keep this stuff top of mind? One thing I'm always curious about with this topic is sort of, is this a human resources play where you're trying to retain employees and keep them happy? Or is there an explicit connection to a company's environmental goals? Yes. Okay. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's all of the above. Uh, it, companies are integrating this into their system. In fact, uh, in the article, Heather Clancy uh, talks about a survey by Ceres, um, the nonprofit group Ceres, that said about 40% of, of companies that Ceres sur- surveyed are building sustainable business principles into their corporate training programs uh, in, or engaging employees across a variety of roles from the front, off- front office to the manufacturing floor. So in other words, this has become a part of everyone's job. Um, this is 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 baked into HR, and there are some great companies. Uh, uh, we Spire, based in Boston, Susan Hunt Stevens, a good friend of ours, has has a, a thriving company now to help employers uh, 
use um, uh, an online platform to engage employees and train them and give them uh, incentives and feedback and uh, updates and and to all the metrics that come with online learning these days. So this has become very much part of the fabric. Sort of another frontier in this I'm interested in following is whether companies apply these same sorts of engagement techniques that they're using at their corporate headquarters throughout their supply chain. We've had a couple of instances of this that we've written about where Miller Coors, I know, um, was big on going out to employees that worked at the breweries to say, how can we really cut down on waste when that was a big focus for them? So I think getting throughout your sort of real estate portfolio and through all the different types of facilities you operate is an interesting area to watch. Yeah, well, no one knows more about where the waste is inside a company than the people on the shop floor, the people at the front lines. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of become a, uh, a thing that sustainability executives say that the smart ones, um, and you, you ask them as you inevitably do, well, how many people work in sustainability um, at your company? And the smart ones will simply answer all of them. So, Lauren, you had a really interesting piece this week about our friends just north of here, just about a couple miles up Telegraph Avenue from where we're sitting in uh, the uh, home of my alma mater, what some people call the People's Republic of Berkeley. They're uh, launching a new resilience plan. What's going on? I feel like this is a little bit of a, a weekly feature that we talk about resilience, but it's an important issue. <laughs> and well, if anything, balance should be bouncing back. It should be resilience. Oh, there. But dum dum. So Berkeley is really the first city in California to take a next step in this talk about resilience and publish a concrete plan that identifies the most pressing risk factors to the city. They had an interesting mix, not only earthquakes, which you would obviously associate with California and also maybe wildfires, um, but they identified racial inequality as something that really threatens sort of the cohesion of the city. Um, obviously, we're at a time of really high housing prices. There's displacement going on. Um, so it was interesting to see them tie together these sort of environmental, social, uh, and sort of do it in a concrete framework instead of just talking about it on uh, in theory. And Berkeley is one of the 100 most uh, hundred resilient cities. Now, there's one of the cities that 100 Resilient Cities and Organization has selected to have a chief resilience officer. And it's one of the few where, along with Oakland and San Francisco, that are clustered together. Most of them are individual cities, but they specifically pick three cities that are all within a few miles of, of one another because of the regional nature of that. Um, and so this is really their articulation of what they want to do. Mm -hmm, yeah, 100 Resilient Cities being an offshoot of the Rockefeller Foundation has come into these cities and sort of supplied the funding to hire a full-time chief resilience officer. And they've also paid for the officials to go to some of the other cities. So I learned that Berkeley's officials went to Rotterdam, where they're doing some interesting work around sea level rise. Um, so it's that kind of stuff where they can give them the peer-to-peer -peer learning, but it's also very much a funding issue so that you've got this foundation and third-party money. Um, but another thing that was very clear with this strategy is that this is in some ways a pitch for capital for all of the projects that they lay out. Uh, some of it's things like seismic retrofits and things you might expect, but another one that was interesting was building a microgrid in downtown Berkeley. 
Um, and that's something that I'm sure we'll hear more about. And I actually asked the chief resilience officer of Berkeley, Timothy Burroughs, to talk a little bit about the plan overall and then this specific component related to energy and microgrids. So first of all, can you just outline for us sort of some of the highlights of the resilience strategy that you're releasing today? Yeah, the resilience strategy is designed to help our community prepare for and respond to some of the most pressing challenges that we face. And uh, one of those challenges, for example, is is climate change. Uh, another challenge is uh, energy reliability. So one of the actions in the strategy, as an example, is to uh, advance access to clean and reliable and reliable energy within within the community. And specifically, we are um, uh, in the process of designing a microgrid in downtown Berkeley that will enable uh, one or more facilities to operate autonomously from the grid when it's disrupted. And that microgrid would be powered by clean sources of energy, such as solar and uh, battery storage. So that concept, that solution, um, creates multiple benefits. It advances energy reliability, which is a preparedness benefit. But it also reduces greenhouse gas emissions, which is an environmental benefit. And it also can reduce utility costs, which is an economic benefit. And I think um, the microgrid concept and uh, is a great example of, of what the practice of resilience looks like. Mm-hmm. And how does something like that actually get funded and come to life uh, within the context of utilities trying to figure out the future of the, the grid and decentralized versus centralized? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to announce that um, the city of Berkeley partnered with Lawrence Berkeley National Labs and several others to uh, submit a grant to the California Energy Commission to advance the design of a local microgrid. And we've been informed that uh, there we have been offered a proposed award for uh, nearly $1.5 million to design a microgrid that would link multiple facilities in downtown Berkeley. And that decision will be finalized by the California Energy Commission in May. So part of the funding, the initial funding, because this is a new, a fairly new concept and a fairly innovative concept, there is a need, I think, for public investment, such as by the state government, the California Energy Commission, federal government, Department of Department of Energy. But over time, in order to make this replicable, in order to make it scale, um, there has to be benefits to the people that participate uh, in it. There's a potential economic benefit, for example, to a private company for energy reliability. Um, there are economic benefits to technology providers that can contribute to a, uh, a, a, a microgrid. And there's also a potential with the microgrid um, to reduce utility costs. For example, at peak, when, when uh, demand is at its peak on the main grid, if the microgrid can operate autonomously from the main grid, uh, you can save money on electricity costs for the, uh, the entities that are participating in, in the microgrid. So short term, I think public investment is needed, and we're very excited that we, uh, we will very likely be getting some public investment from the state in our, in our concept. But over the long term, it has to be sustained by, uh, by creating value streams for multiple entities within the community. Mm-hmm. And finally, what potential is there to incorporate other nodes of renewable energy activity like residential solar or potentially EV charging into this vision of resilient energy? We're excited about the potential over time to to, to scale this concept so that uh, other existing sources of renewable energy could be incorporated into no microgrid nodes throughout the community, such as solar installations or such as uh, EV charging batteries. Our initial approach is to focus on piloting the concept in downtown Berkeley uh, and really documenting what worked and, and what doesn't work so that we can then scale it and replicate it, not only in Berkeley, but throughout the region and, and throughout the country.
So one of the things I wonder about uh, chief resilience officers like Timothy Burroughs is how do they operate in a city? I mean, they don't seem to have a lot of you know, command and control authority. They have to work across the fire department and the police department and other emergency services, the public works, housing, uh, who, who knows what else. Uh, what kind of influence or, or, or authority do they have? It's an interesting role because these people are also supposed to be reaching out to the private sector. A lot of the emphasis here is on public-private partnerships. And within the city, the mayor of Berkeley was also at the launch of this event. So I think there is sort of high-level support for the idea. But when it comes down to implementation, I sort of asked, is there a, a line item in the city's budget related to resilience? And he said, no. So I think it's it's not a standalone department. They also, they Berkeley does have a group focused on sustainability and energy. So it seems like it is sort of trying to get the the different limbs working in tandem here. So it sounds like the chief resilience officer is kind of like the chief sustainability officer has been at least historically inside companies, which is an army of one or three or five people inside a very large entity with uh, very little authority, but huge mandate. Uh, so they they operate by influence and bridge building and persuasion and not be, not by saying, here's the law, you got to live up to it. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch. Definitely with uh, San Francisco and Oakland nearby also having chief resilience officers. Curious to see if we can get a little alliance going. So one of the perennial topics that we deal with at GreenBiz is reporting. So that can be everything from carbon accounting and companies taking a closer look at their emissions to measuring water scarcity or impacts throughout the supply chain. Uh, we had several pieces this week that delved into those topics. Uh, the first one was a great reprint from our friends over at Encia, and that ran under the headline, More Companies Are Tracking Carbon Emissions, Is It Helping? And the grand takeaway was that groups like CDP, which we'll jump into in a minute, we actually had some visitors from them come through the office this week, are indeed helping. They're raising the profile of the issue. More companies are at least sort of flagging emissions issues. Uh, but to truly, this is something we've also talked about, to truly make a dent, you need to get into things like those scope three supply chain emissions and sort of dig deeper into a company's operation. Yeah, this is, uh, as you said, a perennial issue. And we've Ever since there's been corporate reporting, there's been conversations about is corporate reporting worth it? In fact, that's one of the pieces we ran today specific to the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, DJSI. Um, and and the person who deals with that most here at GreenBiz is our good friend, Vice President and Senior Analyst, John Davies, who's here in the, in the, in the office and in the studio today. And uh, John, you know, talk a little bit about uh, the 80-some members of the Green Biz Executive Network. I mean, this is a topic of conversation that comes up all the time. Yeah, Joel, I think they're, they're often frustrated with reporting because they get surveys and requests for information on an almost daily basis, it feels like, for them. The and dreaded survey fatigue issue. The dreaded survey fatigue. And I, I think that a lot of them, uh, the frustration is that there's no normalization. Each question is slightly different, so they can't have a stock set of answers. So in other words, and this is particularly true, not just with organizations like DJSI and, and CDP, formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, which does have a standard, but it's everyone else. It's every customer or NGO 
or socially responsible investment group that comes in with uh, with some variation on the question that somebody else asks, except they frame it differently or different time frame or a different, slightly different metric, which means that the stock information that the good sustainability people have on hand needs some tweaking or rethinking or maybe even redoing. And it's, it's I mean, we did perhaps uh, ironically a survey on surveys a few years ago and, and, and wasn't John there, there was some FTE, some full-time equivalents that, that companies had on their staffs just to fill out environmental forms. That's true. And, and I think the challenge back then was that the forms were coming from SRIs or NGOs, and no one knew what the information was really being used for. I think one of the big shifts we've seen is that we're seeing more requests come from RFPs, and that translates to actual revenue generation and profitability, and so companies are more interested in um, contributing to those kind of responses. Well, one of the questions I think they wonder about, I'd love your thoughts on this, is you know, even with the RFPs, you know, there is a customer says, uh, uh, we, we're, we'd like you, you to bid on this product or service. And by the way, we have some environmental or social uh, ish, questions in there. Does anyone look at that? In other words, you go through the, pro- the process of filling out all these forms. <laughs> Do you think that, the, that the, the, the customer actually goes and evaluates that or is it kind of just busy work? So I think a a few years ago, it may have been more busy work, but there are initiatives that we've been writing about, like the Healthy Building Initiative, which says that you're not going to be a vendor to ours. We're not going to buy this specific product unless you file the information we're interested in. And it's certifications like Cradle to Cradle and uh, USGBC LEED. And so I think this is, you know, driving suppliers to manufacture slightly differently or else they miss opportunities. And I think the other thing it it drives is a conversation between the salespeople and their sustainability people. So it's a real conversation because the salesperson has their vig on the line, if you will. Mm -hmm. And one interesting frontier in that discussion, I think, is around uh, sort of buildings and furnishings. I know Google has come out and said they're not going to bring anything toxic into their workplace, which then that's obviously a signal to furniture makers and people that are looking to supply building materials that, oh, hey, you have to comply with that as well. So this is uh, continues to be something that companies need to care about, uh, and and that brings us to CDP, which has uh, been around for about 15 years and originally started asking by asking a, a, a small group of, of, of companies to disclose a number of things about uh, their carbon uh, emissions, and, uh, and, and that was for the benefit of a group of investors, institutional investors. And over the years, it's become, uh, they now, I think it's uh, 5,600, I think, companies that report into the CDP. Um, and some trillions of dollars of investors that look at the data or, or at least consider it in some fashion. And CDP data now shows up on, um, on Bloomberg terminals and other things that have already access to, uh, to, to investors. How it's used and what fact, how it factors into investment decisions is, is still unclear. But this week, we had come into uh, 350, the Green Biz office, uh, Paul Simpson, the CEO of CDP, uh, and uh, was in town and uh, came to 
uh, have lunch with us and talk about a number of of issues going on and sort of where where their organization is going. And one of the things that uh, he talked about and that he and I then had a conversation as, as we went after lunch into uh, here at Greenview Studio was uh, that the reporting has moved beyond uh, carbon now uh, to things like water and deforestation. So let's listen in. I think most people know that CDP used to be Carbon Disclosure Project and that disclosing carbon was why you came into the world. But you're now asking companies to disclose around water and deforestation. Talk, talk a little bit about what's going on there. Sure. So we started, as you say, on climate change. And then after a few years, many companies were coming to us and saying, look, you're asking about carbon, greenhouse gas emissions, climate risk. But in some regions, some locations, water is going to impact first. In fact, one of our colleagues coined a phrase, if climate is the shark, water is the teeth in some regions, some locations. Equally, obviously, deforestation is about 10 to 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions, so we can't claim to tackle climate change and keep within two degrees unless we uh, address deforestation. So we've been broadening out a more holistic assessment of corporate sustainability covering then climate, water, and deforestation, three areas that are intimately linked. So you've created a questionnaire, one on water, one on deforestation, asking companies to disclose certain information. Talk a little bit about what they're disclosing and then what happens to that information. Sure. So th- that's right. We've created those questionnaires in, in working with the investors who are asking for the information. Uh, so uh, in terms of water, what investors are really looking for is, does the company have a good handle on water risk? Are they being a good water steward? Are they aware of where the impacts are? And water is obviously a very different issue to a carbon, ton of carbon, saying global warming potential. On water, they're looking at, is there water risk or water security in any given area? Does a company understand how it's impacting and what its needs are within a certain river basin? So the water issue is partly much more local, but investors are very much looking, does the company have an awareness and a strategy to respond to that where there may be a risk and where there may be a need for action? On forest, the work is really looking at deforestation in supply chain. So is a corporate procurement driving deforestation which is obviously not good, or ensuring they're avoiding deforestation. And that's through their purchase of forest risk commodities, beef, soy, timber, palm oil. So it's looking at the supply chain, looking at the company's systems and processes for ensuring they're only buying uh, those products from sustainable sources and they're not driving deforestation. So to do this requires companies look pretty deep into their supply chains, uh, pretty far up their supply chains to find out what you know small holder farmers are doing and, and, and I assume smaller factories that use water. Is that information gettable or are they finding that it's, a lot of it still remains opaque? So on the, on the water, companies are mainly looking at their own operations, uh, so which is much easier to capture because they should know that, that data. And then is there strategic or systemic risk in their supply chain? Uh, on the forest piece, most companies are not really engaging directly with the farmers. They're looking at of the commodities they're buying, are they certified as sustainable? Is that a source that can be trusted? Uh, are they working with um, a group of producers to ensure sustainable production? So particularly on timber, we've seen the Forest Stewardship Council certifications. There are others. And then on palm oil, the responsible, uh, the roundtable on responsible palm oil, uh, you know, the companies that have engaged in that, that's still at the strategic level, but then you have to trickle that down. And that's really one of the key challenges for the companies. And are investors using this data and for what? 
So interestingly, we see still we have, see most investor interested on climate change. Uh, strong, some 600, 800 investors, strong investor interest on water. Now six hundred investors, sixty trillion dollars of assets, and that's growing a lot. I think because people have experienced both where there've been droughts, the floods in Thailand, you know, real financial impacts from shifting commodity prices or um, disruption in supply chain because of water. Deforestation, we have about 250 investors who are interested in that. They're more looking at this from a systemic risk, but also there's new legislation in the US and Europe around illegal timber and other products that, that's driving a kind of legal risk for companies. So that's, that's what's really driving that. So you have this uh, event next week at uh, the Googleplex, not too far from here down in Mountain View. Uh, is this a regular event? What's going to be going on? So CDP, we, we have an annual spring workshop here in the US, uh, generally been in New York. Uh, this year, we're delighted to move it to the Googleplex, bring our work to the West Coast a bit more. There's loads of companies and investors we work with here. And there we'll be discussing the interplay of uh, data, innovation and sustainability. So what's the role of data in driving innovation for sustainability? We're going to have Lisa Jackson from Apple, the head of operations from Google, uh, BlackRock talking about the portfolio carbon emissions missions and data at the portfolio level, HP Enterprises talking about it at the corporate level and Google talking about it at the earth level from Google Earth. So trying to bring these different levels of metadata and the role of big data and how that can inform and assist uh, driving of sustainability. Sounds fascinating. And, and the fact that you're doing this on the West Coast is sort of part of an effort for CDP, which has an office in New York with, what, 40 or 50 people, to have a little bit more presence on the West Coast? Absolutely. So we've, we've been working here for a long while, but from North America, from London, uh, we come here sometimes. We, we, we love California. Uh, and in May, we'll be opening a, a small office with our first colleague here so we can work much more closely with the investors and companies in the region. Well, it'll be great to have you in the neighborhood. Uh, thanks so much for stopping by GreenBiz. Paul Simpson, the CEO of CDP. Thanks, Joe. Much appreciated. So one of the things we talked about over lunch with Paul was uh, about a new fee that CDP has, uh, has announced to uh, actually charge companies uh, for submitting their application. Up to this point, there hadn't been a charge for that. And uh, it raised some eyebrows. And I know, uh, John, at the executive network meetings we had in uh, January, you talked about this with some of the members. It became a topic of conversation. And that conversation uh, caught the attention of, of the folks at CDP. In fact, Paul Simpson reached out to me a few weeks ago and said, hey, I hear you're, you're talking about this. Are you, are you dissing us? You know, I'm a little concerned about that. Uh, so uh, I know you and he sat down and, and worked that out. But what, what's going on here, John? Well, Joel, one of the features of the executive network is that we allow companies to send in questions that we will then anonymize and send out to all of our members. And so when the fee came along, uh, one of our members just asked, is this going to cause anyone to drop out of CDP and stop reporting? And we got a pretty substantial number of responses, and we uh, compiled them anonymously again and sent them out to members. And the overwhelming uh, response was, no, we're not going to drop CDP. But several people were just sort of ticked off at the idea that there was a fee. It's not a big fee, but it's just sort of the principle of the thing that you're, you're being asked to supply all this data and then to pay for the pleasure of doing it. And I think that was a, a challenge for them. But CDP is, remains uh, solidly in, 
as part of company's to-do list, right? Right. As you mentioned, a few years ago, we did a survey of surveys and, and GRI and CDP are the two things that are sort of a baseline for, for any company to do that's going to do their reporting. And then everything else sort of becomes optional beyond that. So CDP is alive and well. Um, John Davies, Vice President and Senior Analyst here at GreenViz, thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Joel. Let's shift gears to look at the week ahead. Joining me now is Green Biz Managing Editor, Elsa Wenzel. Well, I recently spoke with Beth Stevens, Disney Senior VP of Environmental Affairs. So in a How She Leads interview, we'll get an inside glimpse of sustainability inside the Magic Kingdom. Um, Speaking of magic, Heather Clancy is taking a look at virtual reality and the role it can play in sustainability plans. Plus, Lauren, you'll be talking with the head of DHL Motorsports about the world's first fully electric racing series. Find out next week. And if the circular economy is more your speed, we've also got a free webcast coming up on April 19th. The topic of that is product stewardship and the challenges of a circular economy. Also, summer is almost here, so you should probably go to Hawaii for Verge Hawaii, the Asia-Pacific Clean Energy Summit. That's happening June 21st through 23rd. Well, thanks, guys, and that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find links to the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode by going to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to our podcast director, Saria Melkonian. Uh, You can subscribe to GreenBiz350 through things like iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or find it every Friday morning on greenbiz.com or through our daily email newsletter, GreenBuzz. You can also get GreenBiz News Daily, including the notification of the podcast on your iPhone with the Apple News app. By whatever means necessary, please join us again next week for another edition of GreenBiz350. Send your feedback, ideas, and comments to us at 350 at greenbiz.com. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. Greenbiz.